Amen. I'd say good to see you. Oh, there is the lights. Now I can see you. All right. Good to see you guys here this morning. Good to know that the rain backed off a little bit, that we could drive cars to church today instead of take boats to church. So good to, good to see you guys all here. If you've, if you've heard me teach before, I usually like to throw a question out to kind of get your gears turning and kind of get your, your head in where we're going this morning. So the, the question to, to, get, to get you there is, when have you noticed that either your words or somebody else's words have kind of killed the moment? Something was going well, we had a, 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 there was a, a good event that was going on, a good family event, and then somebody said the wrong thing, and it totally changed the, the, the tenor of the room, and it kind of sucked the air out of the room. And as a parent, I tend to think in terms of, of, of the, the Christmas morning, and after you feel like you've really done a great job, and you've gotten the right thing, and you feel like you really killed it as a parent this year. Yeah, everybody was happy and everybody, and, and after all the carnage was done, everything's been opened and there's, there's paper everywhere and, and all that. And, and then somebody, usually a, a child will be like, I didn't get the thing I really wanted. And, and you're just like, I'm going to teach you the meaning of Christmas because this is going to be your last one. Or the the, the, the celebrity gives the interview and, and says something that was not the right thing to say at that time or maybe possibly ever made a, a statement about a, a certain person or maybe a group of people and pretty much destroys that person's career. We've seen that with, with athletes. We've seen that with musicians. We've seen that with owners uh, of maybe sports franchises who have said the wrong thing and have literally had their, their franchise taken from them, been voted out because they, they said the wrong thing. And, and some people think, oh man, that's like even unforgivable. I can't believe you would say that. Or, or even you think about some of us maybe carrying wounds even to this day from a, a word that was spoken to us by a parent or by a family member that, that has stayed with us to the point where we can't even talk about it. And somebody will ask, well, what happened? And, and the only thing we can come up with is, he knows what he said. She knows what she said to me. And it has changed. And, and the, the word changed the moment and, and maybe even changed a destiny for somebody. And, and by, by review of last week, if you remember back to our charts and our, our, our pictures, our graphics about our identity in Jesus, and you remember we had the big body representing the, the body of Christ and then the little bodies in there representing our placement in the body of Jesus. And if our identity is in Christ and Christ's identity is in us, then what's going on in our hearts and how are our words reflecting that? And Jesus has something to say about the value of our words. And so our passage this morning is Matthew 12, verses 22 through 37, but I'm going to do something different because I'm different and I'm weird. You'd be like, yeah, of course you would do that. This, this is totally a Kevin thing. I'm starting at the end of our scripture in verse 37, and for the first six verses, I'm just going to work backwards. I'm going to start with Jesus's ultimate statement in this passage and then work backwards to verse 31. The beauty of Jesus's words is that even as I was reorganizing these backwards, it still made sense. Jesus's words made sense either going backwards or forwards because it's Jesus, and so that's how that works. So just trust me for these first six verses, and then we'll go in order from that. But we want to start in part one of our passage with Jesus giving this verdict. So here's the verdict that Jesus offers to the Pharisees, and we'll get into what they did and said here in a moment. But in verse 37, Jesus says, the words you say will either acquit you or condemn you. 
And I tell you this, you must give an account on judgment day for every idle word you speak. A good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart, and an evil person produces evil things from a treasury of an evil heart. You brood of snakes, how could evil men like you speak what is good and right? For whatever is in your heart determines what you say. A tree is identified by its fruit. A, a tree is good, the fruit will be good. If a tree is bad, the fruit will be bad. Anyone who speaks against the Son of Man can be forgiven. But anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven, either in this world or in the world to come. So I tell you, every sin and blasphemy can be forgiven, except the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which will never be forgiven. What on earth had to happen for Jesus to say this? to come out kind of guns blazing, to make this assessment, to make this judgment on people's hearts, what could he have said to make him result to these kind of harsh words? And that's where we're going to back up to verse 22 in part two of this uh, passage that I'm going to call, here's the event. Part two is the event. This is the thing that kind of sets everything in motion to get Jesus to this point where he's making these really hard statements to a group of people. Verse 22, then a demon-possessed man who was blind and couldn't speak was brought to Jesus. He healed the man so that he could both speak and see. The crowd was amazed and asked, could it be that Jesus is the son of David, the Messiah? So here's Jesus doing Jesus things, healing people like he had been doing throughout the gospel of Matthew. And, and people are amazed at it. And then they offer up this statement. Could it be that Jesus is the son of David, the Messiah? Or in, in our context and with this, this series, the king. Could it be that Jesus is the king? Then we move to part three, which is just one verse, but this is the accusation lobbied against Jesus by the Pharisees. Verse 24, when the Pharisees heard about the miracle, they said, no wonder he can cast out demons. He gets his power from Satan, the prince of demons. Now, to give you a little bit of context of what's going on here in chapter 12, chapter 12 of Matthew's gospel could probably be summarized as simply Jesus versus the Pharisees. If you go back and look at it, every, almost every single encounter in chapter 12 is Jesus against the religious teachers known as the Pharisees. At the beginning of the chapter, we see Jesus having a, a, a not even a war of words because Jesus is right, but a, a, a battle about what's work on the Sabbath and what isn't. Jesus' disciples were, were seen picking grain, picking the heads off grain on Sabbath and eating because they were hungry. And the, the Pharisees were like, your, your disciples are breaking Sabbath. They're violating from working. And so Jesus has some words with them and says, well, you know, David and his men did this on a Sabbath, and I'm Lord over the Sabbath, so it's okay. Then they move to another one right after that where a guy is healed in the temple, and Jesus again is accused of working on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, look, look. You guys are landowners, you guys, are, you guys have animals, and you have uh, farms, and you do that for, for a living, and if any of you had a, a donkey or an animal fall in the ditch on the Sabbath, you'd pull it out, but we wouldn't call that work. You're not going to be like, sorry, donkey, you're going to have to hang out in that ditch all day, I'll get you tomorrow, it's Sabbath. That can end up costing that guy money, because if we don't have a donkey to plow the fields, we can't, we can't make money, we don't, we don't have a living. So Jesus is saying, you would even do that. So how much more somebody is, is coming for healing that we take care of that? And right after he heals the guy, the, the scripture says that the Pharisees then decided to plot to kill Jesus. They, they went off and they said, okay, we got to figure out a way to get rid of this guy. And then we have this passage where Jesus heals another person, and then he, they get this response. He's driving out demons by the power of Satan, the prince of demons. 
Now, Jesus had already heard this once from them. He had healed in chapter 9, and they made the same statement. Jesus let that one go. He does not let this one go. It's as if he, he heals this guy, and he, he's walking off, and, he's kinda, and he kind of hears them say this, and he's kind of, all right, I'll deal with you in just a minute. But, but the reason the Pharisees use this, this phrase that they're like, oh, he drives out Satan by the power of Satan, is they're looking for, if we take it in context, they're looking for a way to kill him. Then, they, then it could be kind of reason to, like in their own rationalization, that they could say, ah, he's driving out demons, but we think he's doing it by a different power. So therefore, we think he's practicing sorcery, which we know is punishable by death under the law of Moses. And you can look that up, it's in Exodus chapter 22, but practicing sorcery or witchcraft was considered evil and therefore punishable by death. So they're thinking, ha we got you. We've got a way to kill you and we're looking for somebody to sign off on this. We're looking for the, the chief priest to sign off. It's like, yep, that's right, let's get rid of this guy. So they're not just throwing that word out, they're not just throwing that out just for the, the sake of like, kind of like a put down, like, well, you smell bad, Jesus. You drive, like, you know, you drive out demons by demons. They're not just throwing that out. They're looking for a way to get him killed, according to the law. So back to Jesus, hearing this response and kind of being like, I'm going to deal with this one this time. I let the first one go. The first one was free. This one we're going to deal with because I'm not going to put up with this stuff. This is going to be a hill that we die on today. I'm going to make you learn the value of of, of what you say. And so we move to part four of our our scripture this morning, that is Jesus's rebuttal. Here's the rebuttal that Jesus offers to the accusation lobbied against him by the Pharisees. Verse 25, Jesus knew their thoughts and replied, any kingdom divided by civil war is doomed. Israel knew this. Israel pretty much became no more a kingdom because of civil war over two brothers fighting over the kingdom that Solomon had left them. Then it turned into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, and they kept fighting with each other until finally one group came and took the north, the other group came and took the south, and Israel was gone for a long time. And now there is no more real kingdom of Israel at this point. So they would understand this as a, as a nation. We understand this as a nation. A town or a family splintered by feuding will fall apart. And if Satan is casting out Satan, he's divided and fighting against himself. His own kingdom can't survive. So he's acknowledging Satan's kingdom in a way by using this language. And if I'm empowered by Satan, what does it say about your own exorcist? The followers of the Pharisees who do this, they cast out demons too. And they'll condemn you for what you've said. But if I am casting out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has arrived among you. For who is powerful enough to enter the house of a strong man and plunder his goods? Only someone stronger, someone who could tie him up and then plunder his house. And anyone who isn't with me opposes me, and anyone who isn't working with me is actually working against me. So Jesus gives this response. I always love to imagine Jesus saying even more than that because I'm like that, and I have a cynical bent sometimes towards the scripture. I feel like I wish that Jesus would have heard all that and looked at them and said, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Trust me, I've heard it all. That's the dumbest, and I'm going to show you why, and then I'm going to proceed to pick, pick apart your argument, and that's what he does. So he's saying, look, your statement doesn't make sense. If I'm an agent of Satan driving out Satan, that's counterproductive. How does that work? Like Satan had a meeting before and is like, look, we're going to take over Israel one person at a time. But every, every fifth person, we're going we're to bring the demon back out of them, you know, just, just for the heck of it, just for fun. 
Like, how does, that help, how does that help this kingdom that Satan is trying to build by deceiving people and by possessing people and all of these bad things that he's been doing repeatedly here in the Gospels? So he's like, that doesn't even work. It doesn't even make sense. That's counterproductive. And if I'm operating by the Spirit, so if we've eliminated the possibility that Satan driving out Satan doesn't make any sense, the only logical conclusion we can draw, if I'm not doing it by the Spirit of, the, of darkness or by the Spirit of Satan, then I have to be doing it by the Spirit of God or by the Holy Spirit. And if I'm operating by that Spirit, then you have to acknowledge, you have no other recourse than to acknowledge that the kingdom of God is here. Now Jesus isn't just, just like the Pharisees weren't throwing that word out, the, that line out just for the the sake of it. Jesus is also not throwing this out for the sake of just, I'm just throwing, to, tossing out lines here, because it was widely held by the Pharisees during that time that after the Old Testament prophet period was gone, which is probably a period, I mean, by the time Jesus rolls around, almost 500 years difference between the last of the Old Testament prophets and the time of Jesus, that the, the, the Pharisees believed that the Spirit of God had gone silent in the earth, that there was no longer a spirit of God living and active amongst the people, and it was unavailable to others, and it would only return when the Messiah returned or when the kingdom of God was established. So that's why Jesus uses this wording. Look, if you're going to say this, and if the only way that this is even possible is by the spirit of God, then you have to acknowledge that the kingdom is now here and that I'm the king. And they're not going to admit, they're not going to admit that. They're not going to admit that stuff because their hearts have become so hardened that they say, instead of saying the things that they should say, they say the opposite of that. He's casting out demons by the prince of demons. So he, he's, he's, he's using, again, their own words to work against them and their own teachings and beliefs to work against them. And then he goes on to say that only one stronger than Satan can tie up Satan. Jesus starts making kingdom comparisons. A kingdom can only be conquered by a stronger kingdom. Again, Israel knew this. They lived this. Jesus already put kingdom, Satan's kingdom on notice in the wilderness. I'd have you back up a few weeks to when we heard from uh, Mark Clausing's teaching about Jesus is king. And remember at the beginning of the gospel of Mark, it says that, that he was recognized as the son, as the authority. So God is passing the authority to the son as the king. And then the king in those times, once king became king, he went out and fought other kingdoms. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He becomes the king. He goes out into the wilderness and wages war against the kingdom of Satan and darkness and beats him. And so now he's beaten him once and now he's coming out and he's delivering all these demons out of these people who are possessed. And it's as if some, at some point Jesus is like going up, you know, it's, it's like Captain Phillips and Jesus is like, look at me, look at me. I am the captain now. I am in charge now. Jesus has put Satan on notice. I'm the captain now. I'm the stronger man. I'm driving out all of your agents of darkness. This kingdom is stronger than yours. And then ultimately, those who are with, you're either with Jesus or that you are against Jesus. And some of your translations, if you have the NIV, it says, if he's not gathering with me, he's scattering. If he's not gathering with me for the kingdom, he's scattering against it. So are our words gathering people into the kingdom or are they scattering people elsewhere? Are we making our words winsome to attract people to the kingdom of Jesus? Not just this building, don't, don't mistake that. But the kingdom at large, are we attracting people with our words or are we repelling them with our words? Are we gathering or are we scattering? That's a tough assessment question for us to ask. But our big point, our big idea for the morning is also a, a question of application that we have to ask ourselves is, are my words moving with the kingdom or against it? 
This is our evaluative question for the morning. Are my my words moving with the kingdom of Jesus or against it? Now, that we kind of have all the context and what's going on in this situation, let's go back and revisit Jesus' verdict in correct order, in chronological order, and see how much more it makes sense to us. So now I tell you, verse 31, every sin and blasphemy can be forgiven except blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And that will never be forgiven. Anyone who speaks against the Son of Man can be forgiven. But anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven, either in this world or in the world to come. A tree is identified by its fruit. If a tree is good, the fruit will be good. If the tree is bad, the fruit will be bad. You brood of snakes, how could evil men like you speak what is good and right? For whatever is in your heart determines what you say. A good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart, and an evil person produces evil things from a treasury of an evil heart. And I tell you this, you must give an account on judgment day for every idle word you speak. The words you say will either acquit you or condemn you. Now it makes more sense. Now it makes sense why Jesus would get so worked up on that. That one comment. No, we're not going to let this one go this time. We're going to address it and how bad your words are and what implications they carry. Jesus tells us that anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. And, and so you might read that and be like, what does that even mean? And, this, and even when I got this assignment, I was like, I've I got to teach this passage. And the more I got into it, most of the scholars were like, calm down. <laughs> Don't make it more than it is. Don't freak out about this verse. And so think of it in terms of one who permanently, and by permanently means it's irreversible. Like we can't go back and, and undo that. One who permanently rejects Jesus' identity as Son of God, as King, as Messiah, as attested by the Spirit's work in him. This is exactly what he's calling out the Pharisees. He's like, look, I'm doing work by the Spirit of God, and you're not only not accepting it, you're attributing it to the kingdom of darkness and Satan. That is hazardous, dangerous, condemning talk. And not condemning to me, condemning to yourself. So think of it in those terms. One who permanently rejects Jesus' identity as attested by the Spirit's work. If you need another example, think of it as the difference between unbelief and disbelief. Unbelief versus disbelief. Aren't those the same thing you might be thinking? Not not exactly, especially not in Scripture. Unbelief, even if you went to a secular dictionary, unbelief would tell us that it is a lack of religious belief or an absence of faith. And we see Jesus dealing with people's unbelief. The most well-known part or passage of this is in Mark chapter 9, verse 24, where Jesus has an encounter with a man who says, Jesus, I need you to heal my son. He's very sick. If it's possible, can you heal him? And Jesus says, if anything is possible to him who believes. And what does the guy follow it up with? He says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Now, if you need to break it down as a percentage, say, Lord, I'm 80% there. I'm 80% locked in on belief. I've got the last fifth, the last 20% I'm, I'm real shaky on, and I need you to help me with my, the part of me that doesn't believe. And Jesus does that. I love, I, I so appreciate this guy's statement. Lord, help my unbelief. And we can take that same request to him because Jesus works with our unbelief. Jesus, I'm about 85% there today. I got about 15% that I'm not sure what to do with. I need help with my unbelief, and God will meet you there. So don't ever be afraid to say that or to pray that or say, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Jesus does this. He helps unbelief. Now, it's disbelief is where it becomes problematic. Because, again, just a secular 
definition would say disbelief is an inability or refusal to accept something is true or real. And isn't that what's going on here today with the Pharisees in our passage? That there is an inability and an outright refusal to accept what's going on. They have seen Jesus do this over and over, and they do not accept what he's doing. There is an outright refusal. There is a hardness of heart that leads them to say what they say. And disbelief is something that Jesus can't work with. He can work with unbelief. He can't work with disbelief. That's why he's saying the things he's saying to these Pharisees. If you need one more example, think of it as a difference between can't and won't. Those are very different concepts, are they not? Can't versus won't. Jesus deals with can't. Jesus, this man can't see. Jesus, this man can't walk. Jesus, this man can't hear. And he deals with it. But the Pharisees are full of won't, and Jesus can't deal with their won't. He can't heal them of their disbelief. He can't say, I notice this is what you guys think. Boom, now you believe it. He can't do that. His hands are tied. He can't deal with won't. Think of your children. Dad, I can't do this math problem. Dad, I can't figure this assignment out. We can work with can't, right, parents? We can deal with can't. We can get in there and help them with these things. What happens when they say, I won't do it? Different ball game. We can work with can't. We can't work with won't. And neither can Jesus. So, if you have encountered this verse, or maybe this is the first time you've encountered this verse about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and you have thought, have I done this? Have I blasphemed the Holy Spirit as a word of encouragement to you and anybody who's watching out there? If you are in such a state of self-awareness that you can ask yourself that question, you haven't committed the sin. If you can ask yourself that, have I committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? You probably haven't. Because that's what's going on with these Pharisees. When Jesus said, do you know what kind of sin you just committed? They didn't say, oh, we're sorry, Lord, we repent. That's not in the passage. They're not even phased by that. Their heart is so hardened that they're like, well, I don't care. Blaspheme you, blaspheme that guy. I don't care, Jesus. I don't care what you're doing. But if we ask ourselves that question, we haven't. So don't lie awake tonight at bed. What are you thinking about? Did I blaspheme the Holy Spirit? <laughs> you didn't. If you're here today, you didn't blaspheme the Holy Spirit. But Jesus says our words are powerful. We have to watch what we are saying. Our, sin, our, our words have weight to them. But make no mistake about it, church. The sin that is unforgivable today in this passage is connected to our words. It's not connected to our actions. Did you catch that? Jesus doesn't say the murderers can't be forgiven. The thieves won't be forgiven. The adulterers can't be forgiven. The guy who tries to take 20 items through the express lane at, the, at Walmart. He won't be forgiven. The person behind him is like, you're not forgiven. The guy who spoils all of the television shows and the movies, that guy won't be forgiven. He won't be forgiven in my house. He doesn't say any of that stuff. It's all tied to our speech. And that bothers us, doesn't it? It bothers us that Jesus is tying the sin to our speech and not to our actions. Because we hear about people, hardened criminals in maximum security prisons who have done heinous things, committed heinous crimes against people who are made in God's image. And we hear about what they've done. And, we, and then, then we hear that they've accepted Jesus as their Lord. And we say, are we really going to see this guy in glory? I don't want to be next to this guy. Do you know what this person did? Is God going to forgive this person for what he did? 
Read about James Dobson interviewing guys like Jeffrey Dahmer and Ted Bundy before they're, before they're uh, sentenced to death. And you, and you hear, and I don't know, I'm not the judge of these things, but you hear them receiving these words about, about how they have found Jesus in prison. And that, that, that churns us. We're like, are you serious? This guy who murdered all these people, this guy who murdered and ate all these people, and we're going to see this guy in glory? Again, I'm not the judge of that. But that churns us. Do you know what this person did? But isn't that how our culture is? We value deeds and not words. We put more emphasis on what people do rather than what they say. Guys, men, men in this room, don't just tell your wife you love her. Show her. I noticed it was all the wives who said that. There was no guy who was like, show her. What'd you say? Nothing. I don't don't say any of that. Now, men, you should both tell your wife you love her and show her, but we put an emphasis on the show. Talk is cheap. That guy over there, he's all barking, no bite. He just talks. He just flaps his gums. He doesn't do anything. But what's Jesus saying here? He's saying that here in the kingdom, in the kingdom of God, bark is bite. Telling is showing, and words are deeds. They are one and the same. And we shouldn't be surprised that Jesus says this. As much as it might frustrate us, we shouldn't be surprised. Isn't this the same Jesus who earlier in Matthew's gospel said, if you call somebody a weak-minded fool or an idiot, you have already committed murder against him in your spirit. Your words are your deeds. The same Jesus who was asked by a Roman soldier who had a sick servant that said, Lord, just say the word and the deed will be done. They weren't even in the same town. This guy was miles away. And he understood that words are deeds. Lord, say the word and my servant will be healed. Words are deeds in the kingdom. My family recently had an opportunity to to spend a week exploring the western part of the country, South Dakota, a little bit of Nebraska there on the, the edge, Wyoming, Montana, beautiful. I, I, I could give you a whole other sermon on the, the beauty of, of God's handiwork out there, but I would just say, just, just do it. Just take that trip sometime and go out there and look at it. it. It's amazing. But repeatedly, my family, we kept seeing signage everywhere outside of forests or outside of national parks or just on the, along the side of the road because it was so dry. We kept seeing signage telling people to avoid using fire of any kind or discard cigarettes in ashtrays or in proper places. Don't just flick it out the window because that can destroy things. It was so dry that just the errant spark or an errant cigarette butt could, could burn up and destroy millions of acres of God's handiwork and wildlife forestry, all those things, just by an errant disregard of something. And you know, if we skipped ahead to the book of James this morning, we'd read in James that he likens our words, our speech, to that cigarette butt flipped out the window, out into the, to the wildfire, out into, the, out into the, the, the brush that set the whole thing ablaze. That our speech can be that, that, that discarded spark that burned down Yellowstone. <laughs> A kingdom of trees and wildlife. Our words are deeds. And Jesus is right on. Because our words reveal what's in our hearts. Verse 34, whatever is in your heart determines what you say. If you want to know, if you want insight into somebody's heart, 
Just sit and listen to them. Just sit and listen to them talk. If you give them enough time and enough space and enough of a listening ear, you'll find out what's going on, good or bad. Also, if you just read what people say in print, what people say online, that's a pretty good insight into what's going on in their heart. How are they talking about things? Who are they talking about? What are they talking about? Is it positive? Is it negative? Just listen. You'll get it eventually. I say that. If you just give people enough time, the truth will always sift to the surface. And you'll get insight into what's going on in people's hearts. And that's what Jesus is saying. Whatever's in our hearts is going to determine what we say. And then he goes on to say, we're going to be held accountable for all of our careless words. Every idle word. If you've read that literally in the scripture, any word without thought. And that terrifies me as somebody who talks all the time. Lord, how many, how many of my words have been idle today? And I'm going to have to give account of all of them? I pity you if you're standing behind me in line when that happens in glory. Justin Canaram's going to be behind me and be like, brother, I hope you brought a lunch. You're going to be here all day. I hope you got the six-foot sub because you're going to need all of it by the time the Lord's done with me. Give an account for every idle word I've ever said. That terrifies me. So my words need to count. There's no place in the kingdom for this type of talk that just says, oh, man, that guy, is just, he just talks. He just says things. You don't pay that any mind. He just says those things because he doesn't know any better. Well, baloney. He does need to know better. I need to know better. There's no place for that in the kingdom. If Jesus is in me and I am in him, then there's no place for, oh, you just got to let that go. He's just like that. Well, he shouldn't be. He should be like Jesus. I should be like Christ in my speech. So that will not be a very well-received excuse if you ever come to me. It's like, man, I, was, I didn't know. What I, I was just being like that. Well, don't be like that. We don't ever have to have that meeting. I'm just telling you right now, don't be like that. That's not a valid excuse. Here's a proverb from you with this kind of attitude. It says, just as damaging as a madman shooting a deadly weapon is someone who lies to a friend and then says, I was just only joking. Do you know these people? They just get start talking. They start saying all this like really, really nasty kind of stuff, this hateful kind of thing. And you're just like, what are you talking about? Like, I mean, I'm just joking. No, you're not. If I didn't say anything, you'd keep going. And if I joined in with you, we'd like turn into gas and matches. Like, yeah, let's keep talking about this guy. He's terrible. So there's no place for that in the kingdom. We can't just excuse that because that's how somebody is. Well, that person needs to change. Jesus needs to change this person because there's no place for this kind of talk. There's no place for the, I'm just joking. But you're not. <laughs> that's like our cover-up for stuff. Like, oh, I really shouldn't have said it. I'm just playing, man. No, you're not. Quit talking like that. Our words are going to acquit or condemn us. One commentator, a uh, guy who's a Matthew scholar I respect uh, a lot, tells us that, that as Jesus is talking about these things and our words being powerful, he's saying that since our words are both an insightful indicator of our character, again, just listen to people. Just let them talk and you'll get insight into their hearts. It's like, but it's also our words are a powerful instrument to incite behavior patterns. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about how your words are not only an insight into your heart, but also can incite behavior patterns in people? We can change people's perspective of someone with, with the right combination of language. Oh, you like that person? Let me tell you about that person. Oh, you don't like that person? Well, let me, let me give you some insight. We, we, it can go either way. Don't just think it's all negative. We can give people helpful insight into people's hearts. Like, hey, let me give you another perspective on this guy that might change your opinion of him. 
but we can incite behavior patterns in people by our, our speech. And so because of that, the commentator says, it's critical that the Lord's disciples carefully weigh the worth and implications of every word spoken. That's not just the 12 that hung out with Jesus. That applies to us as well. If we're in the kingdom, if we're following Jesus, if his life is in us, our identity is in Christ, then for us as well, every word spoken needs to be carefully considered. And we don't like it because it takes forever and we have to put a filter over our mouths. We have to think through what we're going to say and it's work and it's hard, but it's the life of Jesus in us and we need to do that. So I empathize with you. Oh man, I have to work at what I say. Yes, it matters. Personally, when I teach here on a Sunday morning or any of, any of the other guys who teach up here, know that we take this seriously, that we don't take this platform lightly because of that, because of that very stuff that our words mean something, and that we can, by, even by no fault of our own, incite behavior patterns in you. Well, if the pastor says that, I mean, I must be okay to do this. If we're saying hateful, awful things, and you guys are doing hateful, awful stuff based on our words, then we're accountable for that. So we take this seriously. But also when we preach, you're getting insight into my heart. You're getting insight into Matt's heart and Mark's heart and Strader's heart. You're getting insight into that. So, so please understand that we take this, this seriously and we want to communicate God's heart. And so we make sure that our words count. So how do our words move with the kingdom? How do our mo- words move with the kingdom? Again, it's back to our identity last week. I hate to be that reductive, but I, I don't have a better metric than that. I don't have a simpler metric than that. If, if I am in Jesus and he is in me, then it's as simple as saying, are my words lining up with Christ in me and my identity in him? And if they are, then it's moving with the kingdom. My words are moving with the kingdom and helping the kingdom. But if my words are contradictory to the kingdom, if they're more like the Pharisees' words, it's moving against it. Did you see that? If our words are moving with Jesus' words, it's moving with the kingdom. If not, it's against it. So an ill-timed word for my kids. If I'm one of these that's like, you'll never amount to anything. Do you know the damage that causes to people? 30, 40, 50 years later? That's damaging stuff. Our words matter. A A hurtful word to my wife. An insensitive word to my coworkers. That stuff has repercussions. It is damaging, and it's moving against the kingdom of Jesus. So as we wrap up, I invite the band up to get ready to close us out. You got to appreciate God's word. <laughs> you got to appreciate the beauty of God's word. And, and I would call you back to the beginning of, of, our, of our text here this morning. And what's going on in the beginning of our text? What's going on? You know, it ultimately, it, it, it ultimately ends with Jesus addressing a group who for years claimed to know God, but couldn't see the Messiah right in front of them and could speak but said the wrong things. And it's all set in the context of a guy who could do neither. Did you catch that? Here's a guy who can't see, a guy who can't speak. And Jesus is dealing with guys who can see, but they're spiritually blind. Who can speak, but they say the wrong spiritual things. And then he heals a guy who can do neither. And you know, we don't have the rest of this guy's story. But I'd like to think the first thing this person saw after he was healed was the king. And the first thing he said was affirmation of that king. Let's pray to that end. Father, that we take our words seriously, that we realize that, that it, is, it, it is a kingdom of words, that our words, we're not going to derail the kingdom. We've already established that, Lord. 
but, but our words can come alongside the kingdom or it can work against it. We can help build bricks. We can help add bricks to the kingdom or we can take bricks down by our words. So God, I pray that you would teach us the, to, to understand and, and measure our words and understand the power of our tongues and our speech and know that we can work with you or against you. So God, would you write that on our hearts and would you convict us by your spirit that when we need to speak, that we speak and when we don't and when we shouldn't, Lord, bridle our tongues. It's in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.